Hello and welcome to Surroundscapes, an audio and video podcast series featuring a diverse collection of interviews with thought leaders from around the world, addressing the general subject of the future of business. This content is curated by Blue Sound Professional and focuses on the role of the oral and visual senses in creating unique, delightful and compelling experiences to stimulate business. This is the first episode of the third series of Surroundscapes, and it's focused on the future of events, the sector of the market that's been hardest hit by the COVID-19 pandemic. I'd like to introduce Dave Lebuskus, the CEO of Avixa. Avixa are our trade body, the AV industry's trade body, and I've been really impressed by the way in talking to Dave, he's repositioning the the trade body to better represent our interests as we go forward into the future. So hi there, Dave. Hi, Graham. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks very much for for coming on. So can you start by giving us uh, a little introduction about yourself and also for those people who don't know who what a Vixer is and what it does, can you just give us a short overview? Of course, and thank you very much for your kind words uh, in the introduction. Uh, AVIXA is actually an acronym. It stands for the Audiovisual and Integrated Experience Association. Uh, we formerly were known as Infocom. Uh, we were established in 1939 as the Industry Trade Association for the AV industry. Uh, in 2017, we rebranded to also emphasize that integrated experience part. Uh, I joined the organization in 2012. Uh, long and windy road uh, to my current responsibilities, uh, but uh, can sum it up with a, a bit of a background in IT, which then evolved into uh, systems and communication systems design within the built environment, working uh, within an architectural industry, and then uh, moving to uh, Infocom slash now VEXA. So uh, those um, those within the association world would describe my, me as one of those coming into the trade body from the industry. Um, others sort of pass their way into trade bodies as a professional within trade associations. Uh, the um, the association itself. Uh, represents uh, a little bit uniquely the entire supply channel uh, for audiovisual industry. Uh, so our members are everybody from manufacturers to distributors to consultants, integrators, and a growing portion of our membership are end users, and really encompasses a ongoing and evol- evolving definition of the AV industry itself. Um, the, the gentlemen that started this back in 1939 were looking for a way to sell uh, more film projectors to high schools. Um, if we had been formulated as the film projector uh, association, we, we probably wouldn't be relevant today. Uh, but clearly uh, defining ourselves regarding delivering integrated experiences with the use of the audiovisual technology gives us, um, I would anticipate, a um, an unlimited future of uh, relevance. Great. And to clarify a little bit, Dave, you, you mentioned the AV industry. Am I right in thinking it's the commercial AV industry rather than the residential and CI industries? Yeah, thank you for that, Graham. It, it is. There is um, CEDIA, which tends to focus in on the residential part of the industry, particularly in the U.S., but in a more broad fashion. In the U.S., there's clearly a differentiation between the residential and the commercial marketplace. As you move into some of the smaller markets, the realities of economy are such that it's difficult for an integrator to be exclusively residential or exclusively commercial, whereas that's commonplace in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're recording this in January 2021, some 10 months into the global pandemic. And um, I think it's fair to say that the different parts of 
our industry have been pretty profoundly affected by it. You're in a unique position heading up the industry trade body. How, you know, what's your assessment of, of how our industry is doing? Our industry is such a diverse collection of solution providers that it's difficult to answer that in sort of a generalized fashion. My father used to say a man with a foot in a bucket of ice water and a foot in a bucket of boiling water on average is comfortable. <laughs> uh, and uh, in some ways, our industry is both a bucket of boiling water and a bucket of ice water. Although I'm sure that's not the uh, most glamorous visual I've ever painted of the <laughs> industry that I uh, deeply love. Early on, as the shutdowns started to roll across the world, a significant portion of our industry is focused in on delivering experiences in a live event fashion and um, had suffering massive devastation of their business models. Um, if your business is, is founded and is dependent upon supporting the audiovisual aspects of corporate events, trade shows, uh, performing events, um, those businesses were just devastated uh, beginning in uh, mid-February and moving throughout the year. Um, like almost all other businesses, a significant portion of the rest of the industry um, went through a, a spasm uh, beginning maybe mid-March uh, through early June. Um, and then as the world started to face the challenges uh, in a pandemic world, uh, recognizing though that business would continue, there's a resilience of our industry. Most of our integrators uh, were designated as uh, essential workers uh, in most uh, venues. Construction sort of moved forward. Businesses uh, more than ever are dependent upon connecting people virtually through technology, which is at the core of, it's one part of sort of the dull DNA strand of what is at the core of the AV industry is this ability to connect people through the use of technology is one strand of the helix. And then the other strand of that helix is delivering an experience that makes that connection worthwhile. Never have our industry participants been more desperately needed than during the last 10 months. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have different sectors of the industry um, fared better than others? For example, at Blue Sound Professional, we cater mainly for the hospitality and retail sector, and that you know has been hit pretty badly in terms of the installation part. I imagine you know government business, um, to some extent corporate business has done has done better than that. Have you found that sort of thing? Very much differences across the various different, uh, we tend to refer to them as verticals in our market intelligence market research. So um, government continued on essentially unimpacted un, uh, by this. Uh, most of those projects um, are large, long-term projects. And so they're not going to get um, too impacted by something initially seen as short-term. I uh, absolutely saw um, hospitality and retail dramatically impacted. Incidentally, um, maybe that which uh, falls the hardest has the highest decline. We do see some of the most um, or, uh, in anticipated growth in both of those sectors moving forward in 2021 and 2022. Well, that's, um, that's reassuring. <laughs> the, you know, the, it's the... Um, other side of the lining of the cloud, right, is that the, the harder it was hit. But, um, and I'll get to that in a second. Let me, the, the, some of the other areas were enterprise, corporate enterprise. Um, one, one person I talked to talked about big money, little money, middle money, right? So big money is that building out uh, a corporate headquarters with a million square feet those projects have moved forward without virtually any type of impact. And little money, the let me reconfigure my um, different meeting spaces to be huddle spaces, those have accelerated. Where they've experienced is a, is a hold and it diminishes in that middle money. Mm -hmm. um, the fitting out a 25,000 square foot 
office space, um, a branch space. Those types of projects have squeezed down and slowed or stopped. Um, higher ed, as you can imagine, um, had a huge investment being made to uh, implement the ability to provide education remotely uh, and attempts of doing that overnight. We certainly all watch the news to know whether or not those attempts have been successful or not. But clearly, um, campus many campuses were not prepared for the scale and demands of being able to deliver education remotely through from K through 12 all the way through higher education as well. Um, I, I mentioned and, and try to be concise in some of my answers for you, Graham, um, is um, with respect to the future for hospitality. Um, one, one prediction I think that was made in March, April that all of us will now attest to is likely uh, impossibly wrong was that we'd never go back out that we you know, would be completely comfortable since we could use Zoom, we could use Teams, we can order uh, food to be delivered or picked up at the curbside, that none of us are ever gonna wanna go back to a restaurant or travel um, for uh, business. We're never gonna do a face-to-face -face meeting again. We're all gonna be living in these boxes for the rest of our lives. And that I think today, nobody would suggest is the case. In fact, I think um, everybody is desperately hungry for face-to-face -face interaction, desperately hung hungry for the type of experiences you can have in a purpose-built environment, a, a space built to serve you a meal, a space built to entertain you. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's our business. And mm -hmm. so, so the, the, the creation and overlay of technology to enhance that experience in that purpose-built space. We, we have learned that we can effectively get prime rib delivered to our house on Monday, which perhaps we never did, but we certainly aren't having the same meal experience that we have in a restaurant. And part of that experience is our industry. So I think those service providers, those restaurants, those hotels are going to invest intensely in further differentiating their space and further emphasizing why you want to go back there and go there. Uh, let's move it to retail. Um, we all certainly know now we can buy anything our heart desires on the internet and have it delivered to our house. Um, but that's not shopping, that's buying. Right. And shopping and experiencing product and experiencing brands will have, I think, a resurgence of that reinforced by our industry. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And I really want to spend some time on that later on. I think that it's really the key to people coming back. It's interesting in terms of, you know, you mentioned that everyone thought that, that we might just hang out in our houses and things. One of the things that I learned when I was doing the workplace series of surroundscapes that I hadn't really thought about is the difference in experience that, for example, you or I have um, to someone in their early 20s. So, for example, you know, I sit in a relatively big house with a wife and a daughter away at university. It's easy for me to have a home office, comfortable for me to have a home office. It's quiet. It's... Um, I imagine it's very much the same for you, Dave. Um, if I'm a, one of five people renting an apartment in our early 20s, all trying to do Zoom meetings from our bedrooms or from you know <laughs> the dining room or positioning ourselves around the house, or I've got a young family uh, doing homeschooling, I've got way more motivation to get back into the office <laughs> Plus, a lot of my social life is tied up in, in that workplace environment, whereas those of us that are older and married and have a little family unit around us maybe are happier being kind of cocooned. Is that kind of what you're seeing as well? I have a, a philosophy. I'll try to keep, I'll try to keep us talking about AB and, and, and work and profession, but I tend to immediately knee-jerk challenge anybody that presents me with a binary description of the world, right? We're going to work from home or we're going to work in the office. 
um, you're a conservative or a liberal. You, you, you know, you're on the left, you're on the right. I, I just, I think that, that human beings are much more complex than that. And, and I think almost everything is more complex than that, right? I mean, using my example of curbside pickup for a restaurant, I've had, I've watched as restaurants have innovated on how they package and present their food in a delivery uh, package that can differentiate that, right? So I, I, I don't think anybody, um, I don't, there are those who work remotely. I think, I think you do, Grant, work yeah, remotely in mm-hmm. normal times, right? And there are those who work, uh, never work remotely. Frankly, I never worked from my home before this because I traveled so much. If I was, if I was in town, I went into the office so mm-hmm. that I could be there with, with my team. Um, the, uh, I have a 20 year old that just left the house. He had returned, uh, uh unplanned from Berkeley and spent a, two semesters here. Um, and, uh, he had friends that are in exactly what you described. It, it's a, an impossible work condition situation. Um, also recognizing that certain changes in different demographics. I mean, he, he is far more capable of concentrating with distractions wrapped around him than I am. Um, so there's, there's a balance there. I think ultimately we're going to see, um, that people will level set into, and I think this leads to sort of also the discussion about like events and trade shows and business meetings, et cetera, is there is a certain amount of work and type of work that is suited to a home environment or a um, coffee shop. And there is a certain amount of work and type of work that is suited to being with your colleagues and being able to interact without the, um, the, the, in, the without the, the limitations of technology. And so I think we'll stop saying that work is work. We'll stop mm-hmm. saying meetings are meetings, and we're going to start really driving into what is it we're trying to achieve and what is the best platform for achieving that. Yeah, I, I totally agree. That bit about the work bit is is something that's that's been fascinating to me that a lot of companies, my own company included, um, sent people to work at, at home. And in the case of the parent company of, of my company, that's not something that they'd done before. They weren't really a big tele, telework uh, company. And you know, they, they found that, that people were very efficient working from home. And um, that was quite a surprise to our owner. However, I think people are very efficient when they're doing busy work, if you like, when they're going through things that they already have on their list of things to do. I think as the month's gone on, what we're finding in general is that for completing projects, working from home is is very efficient. For you know the stimulation that you need to, to create new stuff, to start new projects, to do new initiatives, a lot of that requires the spark of people being together and, and um, ideas. And, and that's the problem area that as this pandemic drags on, we're getting on to more and more that, that starting new stuff, being being creative remotely is is a much harder thing to do. In the technology world, there's a um, concept described as tech debt, which is you've got software mm-hmm. that you've got out there, right? And you patch it rather than fix it. And um, the, the, the intent is to sort of accumulate how much would we have needed to spend to actually fix it. And at a certain point, that debt needs to be paid. There's, I think, enterprises today are absorbing a collaboration tech or, or a debt or a innovation debt where we're able to survive in the short term with um, accumulating that debt. But at a certain point, that, that bill will need to be paid in mm-hmm. order to um, move forward. I have another observation on this a little bit. Um, you know, I don't hear a lot of people talk about it. I hear um, and, and have participated in a lot of conversations about the efficiency of working from home and the surprise, uh, as you described, of your parent corporation going through that. Um, I think I think we have to be careful that we don't um, conflate the uh, 
the efficiency, the surprising efficiency of working from home with the urgently demanded efficiency coming from clear prioritization of a pandemic, mm -hmm. right? The mm -hmm. businesses around the world were all faced with an existential crisis in many cases. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so the, sh what's most important for me to work on, um, Joe's priorities or Mary's priorities or what Tom told me to get done by the end of the week, those sort of lack of direction, lack of, um, prioritization for workforces were obliterated overnight. And everybody knew where the dragon was that needed to be slayed and everybody aligned to slay that dragon. Um, they just happened to be doing it from home. So let's, let's certain that the efficiency wasn't just from the venue. A lot changed in that time frame. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I haven't heard that one before. And that makes a ton of sense, that, that kind of clear focus. Um, well, let's talk more about the trade show element of it, because this year, or last year, actually, it is now, um, the, the, uh, the wonderful 2020, Infocom did a virtual trade show because we couldn't obviously go to our, our industry's main trade show in North America. How was that for you? And, and also for the exhibitors and the attendees. Yeah, so Avixa actually probably did 500 virtual events last year. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, one of them that we called a trade show targeted in North America called Infocom Connected that we did um, intentionally to create a platform that filled the space of the canceled June show. Um, we also did a show called um, uh, Go go virtual Infocom in uh, India in mm -hmm. uh, November. The difference between the two of those shows is fascinating, actually. And at some point, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to actually being able to sort of study it and write it up. But the, the evolution of virtual brand presentation and thinking um, from March to December of 2020 um, is extraordinary. Mm. Uh, that I just had talked about the the type of work, right? That working from home or working from office is dependent upon the task and the goals and the outcomes you're trying to achieve. I think um, what we tried to do in June is deliver a rich experience that would connect the industry, provide a brand platform for our exhibitors Mm -hmm. to be able to meet with the industry. And um, I'm not sure if we ever really said it out loud, but it was simply uh, Infocom, the show, is is a part of our industry practitioners' lives, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody mm -hmm. has Infocom stories. Um, everybody knows that Infocom is in June and they look forward to it and they reconnect with their friends and they have story after story after story of do you remember back in you know 1975 right i hear these stories um we wanted to hold that we wanted to give we wanted to fill that hole in the heart of our community a bit um i think there's a challenge you and i were talking before we actually started the recording about a film production company you know, the best visual I have seen is um, a, a movie camera positioned above a physical book, a paper book. And you see in the background a monitor showing the pages of the book being turned. And it's captioned, this is not how you turn a book into a movie, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, but, but lots and lots of books are turned into amazing movies. You just have to recognize they're two different mediums yeah. that have yeah. two different sets of roles and vocabularies and capabilities and strengths and weaknesses. Um, and I think at the beginning of this, a lot of us tried to deliver a trade show by filming the pages of a book mm -hmm. turning, right? Mm -hmm. But let's face it, there are no exhibitors in a virtual trade show. You have brand presence, you have participants in the show, but there's the exhibiting is, it's not 
it's not, a, it's, there's no trade show floor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's things that we tried to create at the outset of this that I think have, um, we've recognized aren't the way to do it. Let's take advantage of the strengths of a virtual environment. Um, by the time you fast forward to our India event, um, there's significant amount of um, data being generated by that event for weeks and months prior to it and after it. Um, it is being mined and utilized to identify um, the most in, most important information for you as an attendee and the most important attendee for you as a brand participating in the show. Um, if you think about it, um, and I know you've been a part of a hundred trade shows in your career, yeah. Um, yeah, at least you, you, you and your company go and you, you rent, you know, a thousand square feet and you put up a booth that you hope attracts people. And myself as an organizer, we bring 40 or 50,000 people through the doors to walk by your booth. And you're hoping that you find the hundred that you don't know that are going to spend money on a product that you have available to them out of that 40,000. But it's kind of, it's kind of a lottery, right? On whether or not your salesperson is going to stop enough people to be able to get to the one out of the 4,000 that you're trying to reach. When you start to marry these physical events with a virtual presence and the interaction and the data, you start to be able to micro segment and you start to get to the point where we can say to you, Grant, Mary Jane is anticipating coming to the show on Tuesday. And based on the classes that she's just taken and based on the three webinars she attended and based on her interaction with these other uh, platforms that we have, you, you probably should meet her because she's somebody that I think you would probably be able to extract value from. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's the future of events is, is this interaction of a 365 virtual platform that is rich and full of content and community and value for both sides of the marketplace, supplemented and reinforced by physical gatherings. I don't think it back to that. I'm not a big buyer of binary. I, mm-hmm. I, I just, I think sure. I, we can't go back to a trade show. I, you're, oh, the, we shouldn't go back to a trade show that it, it ignores the value that can be created by a broader engagement. Um, and we shouldn't abandon the stories that we gain out of the trade show experience. Definitely not. Yeah, I was talking to a company that produces live streamed gigs. So as as people have, you know, when when we first locked down, artists would pull out an acoustic guitar in their living room and do a Facebook live stream to to some of their audience. As time's gone on, people have um, up-leveled that. And and maybe the the ultimate one I've seen so far that a friend of mine was involved in was a, a recent Billie Eilish concert where she used um, LED technology, AR technology for a complete XR um, event and then also had uh, fan engagement um, before or after and during the concert. And there's a lot of talk about how something like that exists as a completely different piece of art than than a live gig. And, and when you go back to be able to do a live gig, how to pull some of that in um, so that there is that um, interactive engagement. There is the ability to use some of these technologies that are quite difficult to tour with at the moment, um, pull down and put up every day. And you were talking about the the Mary Jane experience um, from the from the classes that she'd been to, and I, I was thinking about um, you know more curated routes through a trade show. So that, for example, if I go and look at a particular type of equipment. I could be informed that this, that, and the other booths also have similar sorts of equipment. And if I'm in the market for that, I might not just scan through the the show guide and and happen across that sort of equipment, but I'd have some sort of curated show guide, um, some some sort of uh, concierge that could really refine my experience at the show so I could get the most out of it in the time I had available. 
Yeah, we've been um, we've been working on that for years, and I think we've gotten better at it each year. That we were really excited about some of the innovations that we were putting into place for that for 2020, and marrying that virtual engagement with the physical engagement, uh, it makes it even unimaginable, really, how how effective you could get in that, provided that you know. This is where people want to make sure you don't get creepy, right? Like there's the, there's the, you know, why are these ads showing up in yep. my Washington Post page when I haven't actually looked at anything online, but we were talking about a new rug. Um, there, that's what, that's what's happening there is those algorithms are getting so, so effective that um, you don't have to talk about it to, to actually have the different pieces put together. And, and that just becomes... That becomes demographic, right? What what is incredibly efficient and um, useful for my son or your daughter is creepy for you or for me. Sure, uh, sure. Um, we have a whole different perspective of, of privacy and and uh, yeah. But it also helps us be more effective in delivering what classes we should be delivering, right? So there's there's the commercial side of this, um, but there's also the the dynamic listening that. God willing, we, the dragon will be slayed, right? And sometime within, you know, a, a foreseeably near future, we will have um, broadly distributed a vaccine that stops millions of people from dying uh, mm -hmm. from this disease. And what that means is we'll be back to the world where Joe's priorities are argued with, Tom's priorities are argued with, you know, Sessie's priorities on what, you know, I'm supposed to do this week. And... Um, that there's that <clears throat> we need to develop a better listening and response system as businesses. We have to be able to, and as a trade association, I have to have really effective ability to hear what are the, what are the needs of the practitioner? What is the installer need to know? What is the consultant trying to learn and then deliver it? and deliver it in an agile and fast and efficient fashion, and then hear how that's been received and, and have these really effective feedback loops in place to continually evolve our offerings. And I think that's relevant for every business in the world, not just a trade association. I'm generally a man of hope. I am an optimistic glass half full mm -hmm. kind of guy, and it's been challenging this year to be that person when you describe Billy Eilish's event like that, that's all AV. That's us. Mm -hmm. that, that's why I have deep hope in the future of yep. our yep. industry. That's all us. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm totally with you on this. Before we get off the subject, though, I, I want to think more or, or just probe a little more for a couple more minutes on the future of trade shows. So... Even before this, a lot of the, a lot of what we've seen, and you've talked about some of it, things like food delivery, virtual shopping, kind of, they're trends that were happening before that were accelerated. Telework is another one of those. Um, and I totally agree with you that there's a balance between all of this. With trade shows, there was particularly the larger companies that had staff um, all over the world were thinking about what a trade show could offer that nothing else could offer. So in the old days where you were sending out data sheets and, and people would come to a trade show to physically see the product and look at it, and, and it was almost like a supermarket that you'd go right. to, shelf sort of product. Now most companies have people that go and visit integrators. The websites have 360-degree zoomable views, so you can get a real experience of the product. And even before this, a lot of us manufacturers were thinking about not questioning the need for trade shows, but thinking about how we could provide things at trade shows that we couldn't any other time of the year, just because we had that time to prepare for it. Also, you guys at Avixa had, had ramped up the, as well as the education part of it, the manufacturer trainings and that sort of thing, you'd put in things like the Tide Conference and the Center Stage event and really brought forward this idea of um, overall education, the ability to 
to use this opportunity for integrators to get out of their businesses and and kind of zoom out a little bit and look at some bigger trend stuff and bring in subject matter experts. And I, I was really, really um, impressed by, by that work. How do you see coming back from all of this, all of this playing out in terms of what a trade show will look like? I think people will ask the question now, why am I going mm-hmm. uh, more than they did before? They were going because they always went um, mm-hmm. and because that's what you do in June. If you're in AV and you can convince your boss to pay for you to get on a plane and go, you're going to go to Infocom. Um, and um, you're going to exhibit in Infocom if you want to uh, you know, have access to the pro AV channel. Um, uh, because every one of your competitors is going to be there. Maybe that's the answer, which is a terrible answer. Um, or because uh, you have an amazing story to tell. I think Let's use one part of one thing I hear everybody always talk about with trade shows is networking, right? So, you know, I go there for the networking. Um, What is networking, right? I think that's a lazy term that we're going to have to define more effectively. Like, are you going to network, meaning that you want to develop commerce? You want to find buyers? Um, Do you want to find distributors? Do you want to improve your channel? Do you want to deepen your channel? Do you want to find a job? You're not happy where you're working or you're not working and you want to find a job. Um, there's, I mean, networking is this generic term, but I think some of those things can be achieved online virtually, uh, but not all of them. Um, content is another one, right? Um, some content is eminently well positioned to be able to be delivered virtually. Um, and some is impossible to deliver virtually. Um, and there's a whole universe in between. I think we're going to have to make sure as we are organizing trade shows. And I think as we're exhibiting in trade shows that we answer that question that you just asked more, more with more discipline which is what is it that we're going to offer here that you can't get anywhere else? Some of that is the experience. I had one exhibitor describe um, our trade shows to me this year as instant. It was in the midst of me saying, how else could I deliver that amount of value to you? And, you know, the good and the bad of the answer was he said, you can't, mm-hmm. <laughs> which meant I couldn't get any money. Right. But what, it, what he also was saying is that the, the value of a trade show is incalculable. The, the ability to participate in that energy and reconnect with the channel, introduce the product and solutions to new buyers, um, gain information serendipitously. None of that can be achieved anywhere other than in a gathering of human beings in the same place and time. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, reaffirms that we will always have these gatherings of human beings in the same place and time. Yeah, I think I think you're right. I want to pick up on something you mentioned about networking, and, and it's really been driven home to me in these virtual times. So in a previous series, we, I talked to Steelcase, who is a company I'm very, um, I follow very closely because I, I think... Uh, you know, they, they do some really great stuff. And one of the things that they've done is thought about the workplace for different types of individuals. So, you know, what's the right sort of workplace for an introvert versus an extrovert? Um, and particularly going to some of the, the online conferences and being an introvert, it's very tough for me to, to go into a virtual networking session because I don't have the, the cues of, of seeing people and, and Equally, you know, in a, in a physical net room, you can see that person, you know, kind of in the corner by themselves and think, oh, they, you know, they mustn't know anyone here. I'll go over and chat to them or something. I think there's a lot of work that can be done around making networking opportunities that work for all sorts of um, personality types. Have, have you done much work on that at, at Infocom? We've certainly looked at that. I, I mean, I've looked at that over, again, this this sort of evolution of how do we make all of this stuff work most effectively for us, right? So if, 
at the beginning, like most CEOs, probably I was having um, coffee with Dave, right? And this isn't a required thing, but I'm going to be in this Zoom room from eight to nine on Tuesday, right? And then you have a hundred people that come in and you see these postage stamp size faces and you try to figure out how do we just casually chat mm-hmm. in a Zoom room with a hundred people in it? Well, I guess at that time it was 50, right? Um, the, uh, and yet now um, what we do when we have large town hall meetings for Avixa for our team is that we take five or 10 minutes at the outset of it and we randomly break it up into um, breakout rooms of three people. And we just give them five or 10 minutes to just chat. You know, sometimes I'll throw out a, hey, what are you most thankful for towards the end of the year? Like as we go into the, the holidays, what are you going to be, what, what do you think is most thankful? Or I might say, you know, what is the um, worst thing that happens in a meeting, you know, and then come back and just throw it into chat, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't that sort of breakout room kind of the, you see me on the other side of the room and you come over to the high top table and I'm like, Graham, how have you been? I haven't seen yeah. you since last year. And it's, you have a room of a hundred people, but it's really you and I having a conversation. Yeah. Uh, I think, I think, um, I have mixed feelings about that because again, you know, I, I feel kind of nervous being thrown into a room with two other people I don't know on an arbitrary basis, but anyway um <laughs> nothing works for everybody i have an older son who's who, who's made the exact comment you described which is you know 2020 is the best year he's ever had the rest of us all get to see what it's like being an introvert yeah uh, well even i'm keen to get back out and see people <laughs> let's move on and talk about what i think is is probably what you're most passionate about and what's most interesting which is this creation of experiences so you know, uh, you, I think, were a, a large part of the rebranding of our trade association to the name of Ixa in recognition of the fact that experiences are so important to us. As manufacturers, we've seen an evolution from selling products to selling solutions. And that probably happened in the AV industry maybe 20 years ago, I suppose, with the convergence of audio and video and control and, and kind of putting stuff together to work as a solution. And in business in general, and I think it's coming in the AV business, you know, this, that move to creating an experience, which is beyond a, a, a stuff, a selection of stuff. And then the, the holy grail, if you like, which is the creation of memories, which are experiences that are so memorable that you remember them 10, 20, 30 years after they happened. Equally, as we were talking about before this, a lot of the key to experience is multi-sensory. So utilizing as many of your senses as possible. And three of those senses at the moment, um, touch, taste, and smell, that's one degree or other uh, unsafe. And that leaves two senses, sight and sound, which are the, the senses that our industry trades in. So you said earlier, and I totally agree, that, that our industry is in many ways uniquely positioned to help business come out of all of this and to get people back out of their houses. Can you talk a little bit about that and and how you think that's going to happen in different sectors? I don't know if I could say a whole lot more without being redundant to the way you just teed it up, Graham. Yes, I, I was involved in the rebranding. I was absolutely, most people don't know, but at least at the outset, I was completely and totally opposed to it. Um, oh, yeah. Relatively early in my position as CEO. And I have just, I have a, I have suspicions about new CEOs that get involved in brand rebranding. I tend to think that they are more a ego exercise than a recognition of a need. Um, the same as like sort of massive reorgs uh, upon arriving as a new CEO. Like if it was that bad, then they probably don't need in, you know, they, they, they probably aren't in business. There's things you just don't know coming into an organization. The challenge ultimately was that um, we are about experience. And what, what won me over was that um, Infocom didn't represent what our industry does, didn't represent what um, Infocom as a brand name for the industry association. It, it sounded like a 1980s telecommunications company and talked about communicating information. But I think that's the lowest most commoditized part of our industry, which is communicating information. 
that's that's the moving bytes from point A to point B. Um, where we really deliver value, where we deliver excitement, what people in our industry are passionate about is connecting human beings to human beings. Mm-hmm. And and to your point, that's an analog connection. That is not a digital connection. Uh, our ears, our analog devices, our eyes, our analog devices. Um, and yet that experience has been um, at the core of communications back to when we gathered around a campfire as a tribe um, and and has, a, I think, an infinite business model that's wrapped around it. What, what gets commoditized is the technology piece. 30 years ago, the AV practitioner was the, the man, and I say man because it probably was a man 30 years ago. Um, mm-hmm came into the room with his black cape, right? He put up a curtain and he made all these different boxes, connected them all with special cables, and then pulled back the curtain and said to the person in charge, push this button and watch what happens. And they made all of these different pieces of communication equipment work together in concert with each other to deliver, you know, slides one after another that looked like they weren't coming from 12 projectors. Mm-hmm. integrated with a soundtrack, right? That was timed perfectly. Nobody gets paid for that expertise anymore. That's commoditized. It's out of the box. Where where the long-term value of our industry is, is in creating those experiences. And that's where we see the entire economy going to. Um, we see it in retail. It's not about acquiring uh, a pair of shoes. It's about going to an Under Armour store and feeling like you're a professional athlete. It's, mm-hmm. it's not about buying a vacuum cleaner. It's going to Dyson's and feeling like you're at the edge of innovation and technology and being left with that sense of um, having lived through something that you hadn't lived through yesterday. Um, and if, if you can continue to be relevant in that conversation, then you have a business model that lasts for 100 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will always stake my future investments on connecting people to people um, as opposed to connecting gadget to gadget. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, those two gadgets are going to be one gadget, uh, or they're going to be smart enough to be able to connect themselves far better than I ever could connect them. And, and so that piece of this, complexity is easy. It's getting easier because mm-hmm. of technology complexity is getting easier what's getting harder is humanity being human with each other and that's what we underscore as an industry and don't don't anybody that's listening to see that i get into the the other this other debate that just frustrates the living daylights out of me which is is our industry about technology or experience um that's back to the white or black left or right conservative liberal you can't deliver these experiences effectively without being a technician, without understanding that technology intimately and understanding how bits and bytes move from point A to point B and what risks are created by all of that. That's a that's just a wasted air debate. Is it technology or is it experience? It's about the experience. That's where the value is, but you can't deliver that value without knowing what you're doing technologically and being competent and being committed to your craft in delivering that effectively. And I think I think the, the difference is how we communicate with people outside our industry, because we're an industry that gets really um, into the technology. And we all do, I do, um, you know, it's cool technology. Our customers don't care. They're interested in what it can do for them. And I think we have for too long done a really poor job of talking to people not in our industry in terms they can understand and get excited by. And the delivery of experiences, whether it's connecting people, which I which I really am firmly um, an uh, evangelist for. I work with shared studios to do that you know, on a global um, scale. But also other experiences, like, for example, going to Team Labs in, in Japan. And that's just provoking immense emotion just with audio and video in a, in a warehouse size kind of space done amazingly. I'm conscious of our time. Um, so 
what I'd like to ask you is, have you any last sort of thoughts of comments that you'd like to share with us? Now, continue the conversation, keep the conversation going. I think uh, sort of, I guess I would make an appeal from your final comment, which is this sort of internal conversation versus an external conversation. Our industry has so much value to deliver and has so much meaning in today's society. And it would be great, you know, all of us, all of the practitioners should pause to think about what are the, what are the people that haven't heard the message and how do I deliver the message in a way that they can hear it and attract new talent to the industry and bring particularly diverse talent into our industry so that that creativity can be reinforced by a set of experiences that you or I haven't had and uh, enriched by those experiences. Um, let's let us let us look beyond the club and attract new people to this industry. I'm all for that, um, and particularly the diversity element of it and and the youth element of it. Um, we're an industry of of largely old white guys and we need to expand beyond that so thank yes. you so much dave i always love talking to you i love your insight how can people get in touch with you and with avixa if they'd like to after this uh, they definitely should should come to avixa.org uh, online and um, i am always available uh, via email you can get me at dlabuskis at avixa.org and i tweet as at david Labuskis. Uh, and I, I'm pretty engaged and active in making sure that I participate in these conversations. Ultimately, I'm here to represent the industry and to serve the industry and have always deeply felt I can't do that if I don't hear from the industry. Thanks so much, Dave. And thanks to everyone for listening. Please, as Dave said, actually, let us know what you think about this podcast on your platform of choice on you know, on Spotify, on Apple, on Google, on Bandcamp, on our website, wherever you're listening to it, please rate the podcast. Let us know what you liked, what you didn't like about it, who you'd like us to be talking to, and please come back and listen to some other episodes. Thanks so much, Dave, and goodbye for now. <laughs>